I learned some something very interesting yesterday, and you all will be real excited to know this amazing fact, that a one-eyed man can see better than a two-eyed man. The reason is because when a one-eyed man looks at a two-eyed man, he sees two eyes. But when a two-eyed man looks at a one-eyed man, he only sees one eye. So the one-eyed man sees twice as good. Did y'all know that? So there you go. So you've learned a very useless fact here tonight. Great to see you. Glad all of you are here tonight. And uh, thank you very much for being in Bible study. And uh, again, uh, always enjoy... um, being in Bible study. By the way, Derek Odom, I heard nothing from that corner of the building with my amazing joke. I didn't hear a thing. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. So there you go after your display Sunday about Brother Murphy's humor. So uh, I didn't hear nothing out of this one either. So I don't think she caught on. I think Greg's going to have to explain that to her when they get home later. She'll chuckle at about 2 this morning when she catches on to it. So, uh, but anyway. But uh, I am happy to see you, and uh, thank you all so very much uh, for being here. And speaking of Derek Odom, I think the man did an amazing job this past Sunday. Just an excellent, excellent presentation Sunday. And uh, administered to me personally. And I say that very sincerely, very honestly. Uh, He ministered to me uh, personally, uh, and I appreciate that very much. Let's jump into Bible study tonight. Uh, The title of my Bible study is going to sound like I'm going to preach a message. With the material that I have here tonight, it's going to be hard not to, but I'm going to try to contain myself. But I want to throw out a challenge to everyone here tonight. I believe everybody can be just a little bit better. I don't believe anybody's capped out at uh, at, at, at an excellence in just how great you could be. I don't think anybody's capped out. I don't think you've reached maximum potential. I always think there's room for improvement. So let's turn to the Word of God tonight. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. The Bible said, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, for the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Be not unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. One translation said, be careful how you live. Be careful how you live. Not as fools, but as those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity for doing good in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but try to understand what the Lord wants you to do. I want to talk to you for a little while tonight just simply on this subject. Don't waste your life. Don't wait, and it sounds like a sermon title, but uh, actually it's a, 
a Bible study <clears throat> title. I've oftentimes asked myself, I'm being very honest here, how many hours have I wasted doing things that were less than eternal? How many times have I spent my day harboring fruitless resentments or holding fruitless grudges or pursuing false hopes? We can be careful or we can be thoughtless. We can live as fools or we can live like the wise, the Bible said. And there are nights when I've climbed into bed knowing that I've wasted a good part of that particular day, that I took my eye off the ball and really threw away several hours. I get the idea here tonight that we're all Christian enough to agree that to do what God wants us to do, to live our lives according to His purpose, is wise. I think all of us here tonight as Christian people would agree with that statement. It's sensible. It's the ticket According to the scripture, it's the ticket to happiness and fulfillment. We agree on that, or at least we are open and some agree to the idea of it. So the question is, what does God want out of us? What does he want? I want to stop here for a minute. I can't see good. Is that Heidi back there? Okay. She's the one doing that hair clinic thing. And I'm on board with that, but I don't know what she is saying in wanting to conduct a hair clinic for our ladies. I don't know what the message is behind that. If she just thinks everybody's hair looks awful and she needs to work with it a while. Heidi, would you like to come up here and share a word? I'm kidding. <laughs> I just I thought I saw her back there and I just I couldn't pass up the moment uh to tease a little bit about actually I'm on board and I think it's a great idea. And I do think everybody's hair looks nice, but hey, we all have room for improvement, right? If I had some more hair, I could make it better. But when you have a shortage of it, Brother Robert. <clears throat> but I am encouraged by this. Brother Tenney said years ago that God does not put marble tops on cheap furniture. So uh, I am encouraged by that. The more I lose. Can you do a men's hair clinic? Heidi? And she said, sure. So we might, we might run that flag up the pole and see what happens. Anyway, back to Bible study. <clears throat> so the question is, what does God want? What is his plan? Why would it be any different sounding to us than the million religious do's and don'ts that we all have heard of all of our lives and that many of us have tried to escape in one way or another. I want to talk about that this subject for a little while tonight. I, I've, I've put together three basic questions. There's three things on the table that I want to talk to you about tonight. So let's have some Bible study. Here are the three questions that God invites us to prayerfully consider as we continue to look towards heaven. This Bible study tonight is more applicable than some may think. Uh, I'm not up here to beat the air, but uh, I believe God has laid this on my heart tonight, and I want you to give it some serious 
consideration. Don't think it's for the guy across the aisle. It's for everybody here tonight. Question number one. What does God want out of us? What does God want? Number two, what does it take? What does it take for us to give it? What does it take for God to get it? Number three, why should I do it? So let's pursue for a few minutes tonight question number one. What does God want? All of us here tonight who are married understand the idea that we want our, our spouse's attention and affection all to ourselves. I've said numerous times to Sister Murphy in our, what will this year be 43 years of marriage, that I didn't marry her to share her with everybody else. I didn't. And I think all of our spouses should feel that way about your spouse. Um, I think we are somewhat jealous uh, in a good and holy way, of course. Nobody wants to be abandoned or betrayed or left for another lover. But the, the plain reality is this. God wants me in the same way that I want my spouse. He wants me in the same way. He wants my whole life. In his sermon resources for the Saddleback Seminar a number of years ago, Pastor Rick Warren said this, There's not a single verse in the Bible, not one. There's not a single verse in the Bible, not one, that says you can be a Christian and live your life any old way you want to. It's just not there. God wants all of you. He doesn't want 10% of you. He doesn't want 50% of you. He doesn't want 99% of you. He wants all of you. In our Pentecostal tradition and heritage, we have sometimes criticized others in the body of Christianity for being too soft on obedience, for not upholding all of God's laws and, and God's principles and what have you in His Word. So we can be thankful for this strong affirmation that we still believe and teach to obedient believers, and we teach obedience to the Word of God, and it doesn't change. So what does God want? He wants every single bit of me. He wants every single bit of you. He wants my undivided loyalty. He wants me to give Him all of me, the undiluted control of my life. C.S. Lewis once wrote an essay entitled Christian Apologetics that there was one thing Christianity could never be. He said, Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance. Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance. And if true, it's of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. Think about that for a moment. If God and His kingdom and His plan are real things, then we have to take them with the utmost seriousness and accept the reality that He wants us in our entirety. 
Paul said in Romans 6.13, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Another translation said, Give yourselves completely to God since you have been given new life, and use your whole body as a tool to do what is right for the glory of God. I think that most of us have this idea about God's kingdom. We say, I owe him a bit of time on Sunday morning and a few minutes here and there to maybe read the Bible or something like that. And I owe him some of the dollars that are in my pocket. I owe him a certain level of behavioral loyalty. But bottom line, my life is my life. And God can get a bite of my pie here and a bite of my pie there and another bite over there. We have religious TV and secular TV. We have Sunday activities and regular activities, Christian music and secular music. And God gets these little bites of our pie. But the Bible says no to that. God wants all of us. He wants my whole being. Notice Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? But to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul. Now we do these other things in our lives. When I perform wedding ceremonies, oftentimes I'll say something like this to the couple who's getting married. When you do your marriage vows, this is the second most important promise you'll ever make. Not the first, but the second. We can have our spouses and our kids. We can love our jobs and we can love our work. We can live for our work. We can have hobbies. We can be fans of our favorite sport teams. We can have money and retirement accounts. It does my heart good to hear that one of our church families has gone on a nice vacation to recharge their batteries. Those of you that I've had that conversation with, you will hopefully vouch for that. I'm happy for people to go away on vacation. I hope you're happy when I do. That's part of the reason I'm happy when you do. It gives me a little extra leverage. That's right. But I am happy when you can go and get refreshed and charged up. And then when you come back from vacation, you sit on the first three rows. You're just ready, buddy. You are ready to get into this. You're, you're fresh. You, you, you're revigorated. You're energetic. You've been on vacation, and now I'm ready to get into it. But these are all good things. They're things created by God. But all of them, good as they are, need to be below the number one thing. As good as they are, they need to be below the number one thing. <clears throat> I like a, a story... I read from the old marriage manual, Letters to Philip, by Dr. uh, Charlie Shedd. A guy named Peter drove home one night and found two women in his driveway. His wife, whom he had seen and kissed goodbye just that morning, and his mother, who was visiting their house for the first time since the couple had gotten married, which had been a couple of months earlier. This young groom sized up the situation, parked the car, got out, walked past his mother, and kissed his wife. Then came back, 
and greeted his mom. First things first. A mom is a great blessing, but the wife comes first. God is even higher than that. We all know that the first commandment says, Do not have any gods, any other gods before me. Listen to Pastor tonight. Whatever is number one in your life is your God. Whether you agree with that statement or not, and whether you look at it that way or not, perhaps God does, and we need to consider that. The wonderful thing is this. When we make God first in our life, He then makes all of the other things fall into their right place. Right? Seek ye first the kingdom. And all these other things will be added unto you. Doesn't the scripture say that? I believe Jesus said that, as a matter of fact. I'm teaching this tonight in part because I, I believe it's really applicable to some of our people, some of our families. But I've just taught a couple of lessons on, bio, on, on tithing. And I want you to understand where priority is and why we teach these things. I think we can all identify with the temptation to plan for some real God years down the road right now we've just gotten married some may say we we have kids to raise others may say we want to get some money put away for their college education we want to get to this certain platinum financial level i'm at the aluminum financial level right now so we think about these god years which are down the road. I'll get all of these other things done first, and then I'll give God my heart. I'll give Him everything about me. And we really have some, some, some great intentions on putting God first, but not right now. Uh, I'll do that a little bit later. Maybe you remember the parable in Luke 14 when the king invites everybody to a black tie banquet. Please come, he says. Everything's ready. But they all made excuses. They all had plans to be good to the king and honor him, but not right now. We'll do it some other time. Right now, one said, I've got to go check out this field that I just bought. And another said, I bought some cows and I need to go test drive them behind a, or in front of a plow. And another one said, I just got a wife and I need to go see about her. Now, all of these things are good things. It, it represents wealth, it represents work, and it represents a spouse. They're all God-given, but all needing to be kept in second place when God invites us to a heavenly banquet. One more promise from Proverbs 3 and 6, and this comes from the royal diaries of a man named Solomon who had a lot of fields, a lot of cows, and a lot of wives. He said in Proverbs 3, 6, In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. This is coming from a man who's experienced both sides of this giving God everything issue. If we've been part-time Christians, if we've had a big pie and just carved out a small piece for God, then today is an invitation for all of us to get priorities right. Give him all of us because that's what he wants. So that being said, let's talk about question number two. If we've determined what does God want, then let's talk about what does it take. We want to give God everything. We don't want to waste our life. 
We want to reach the spiritual potential God intends for us. So what does it take? Everybody say, ouch. Maybe we could do this. Just pinch the person next to you real hard and see if they'll just, I'm just teasing. Our sweet brother Alexander was testifying in Baker years ago. And he went on and on and on for a while. And I gave Brother A a lot of latitude. I did. And he finally cut his testimony short. And he said, well, I guess I have to sit down. Mildred is pinching me real bad on the back of the leg. He didn't holler, ouch, but he did quit testifying. So there you go. The reason I ask you to say ouch is because what does it take to give God what he wants? takes discipline. Everybody say discipline. Discipline is that one thing we don't like. I never have really liked the word personally. Uh, Discipline doesn't bring fond things to my mind. Discipline brings things to my mind like piano lessons, mandated haircuts, Heidi, overbearing school teachers. I remember one time my dad told me not to play on some construction equipment. I did it anyway. I jumped off of one a tractor. I fell in the hole with my foot and sprang my ankle. Limped home, crying, bawling. I'd never been in so much pain in all my life. I don't think I've ever been in that much pain since. My daddy took me in the back of the house and gave me a whipping with a belt for disobeying him and put me in the car and took me to my mandated haircut appointment that could not wait. That's why I don't like the word discipline. My daddy told me to be home at 8 o'clock one night. I came home at 8. He said, boy, why are you an hour late? I said, I'm not. He said, yes, you are. I told you to be home at 7. I said, you told me to be home at 8. And he whipped me with my shoe. I was raised by one of them old-fashioned kind. I could keep going with those stories, but that's why I'm not real. The, The word discipline does not bring pleasant memories into my head. And it's that way perhaps for a lot of us here tonight. When you think about serving God... And the word discipline comes into the picture. We have a propensity to be very, uh, well, we want to push back just a little bit. But here's what the Bible tells us. In Proverbs ten seventeen, again, the wise man, he is in the way of life that keepeth instruction. A person is in the way of life when you do what you're told, when you keep instruction. But he that refuses reproof errs or you make a big mistake one translation said whoever practices discipline is on the way to life in fact doesn't the word discipline and the word disciple seem to have the same root somewhere in common so okay we've established that we hate that word but let me make a point there's a a very simple reason Some of you here tonight have college degrees. There's bachelor degrees here tonight. There's master's degrees here tonight. There's college or or doctorate degrees here tonight. There's a reason you have those degrees. You've been bestowed that degree. You've been honored with that degree. And I have a lot of respect for that. But it's because the word discipline came into play somewhere. There's only one way in the world that some of you folks could have passed the required exams. I don't think you cheated either. You went to class and you studied 
You didn't sit around and watch TV and movies and play video games. And you passed up on social events and and parties. Why? Because you were disciplining yourself. You were willing to embrace the idea of delayed gratification. I've even had church folks say to me, Pastor, I'd love to go with you to such and such a restaurant. I'd love to meet with you at so-and-so for a burger and a basket of fries. But I can't this week. I have classes. Or I have other responsibilities. It's because we, for the most part, do live disciplined lives, whether we want to look at it that way or not. All of us are accustomed to doing hard things so that we can enjoy fun things later. We have some runners in this church. Not runners of the aisles, even though we do have some of those. We have people that run outside the church, but not because they're happy about Jesus. I don't know what they're happy about to do that. I just, just to get out on the side of the road and run like a fool, just for miles and miles. I just don't understand it. You, you, you need CPR and resuscitation and morticians and doctors and lawyers and nurses and all that when you get to the end of it. Why do they do that? There's people that get up every morning of the week on hard pavement. And it's gloomy outside. It's dark. The sun's not even up yet. And they're running like their house is on fire. Why? My mattress is amazing. And it's warm. And y'all excuse me here tonight, but you'll understand me. I have a wonderful lady right, right there. I ain't getting up and going running down the street to nowhere. And then turn around and run back. But people do that for some, I suppose, delayed gratification. So they can put a sticker on the back window of their car that says something like 13.1 or something like that, I think. So what that sticker says, don't hide. It ain't working. I do know that, that, that we have this discipline. We are disciplined enough to gather at the dining room table or a table somewhere three times a day. 21 times a week, 1,092 times in a year. I can't remember when I was so undisciplined that I couldn't make the dinner table. I never remember that happening, ever in my life, that I was so weak-willed that I just couldn't drag myself to the dinner table. My problem, where my weakness is, is once I get to the dinner table, is when to leave it. That's my problem. I'm amazed at how... The, the major league baseball players can field grounders and then make a throw over to first base. Some Golden Glove winners, third baseman that wins that prize, have such a strong arm that when the batter hits the grounder, they can scoop it up and they can stand there and pause and they can eat a hamburger and drink a Dr. Pepper and then throw it over to first base and get the runner out before he gets there. It's because... That was an exaggeration about eating hamburger and Dr. Pepper. I just want to make that disclaimer. I'm just using it as an illustration. 
But they do that, and they can do that, because these people, they are incredibly disciplined. And for them, discipline becomes a habit, and habit becomes a life, and and then it becomes a lifestyle, and then it becomes $20, $30 million a year and up. So their discipline to them is worth it. And if you are habitually faithful to your spouse, you are a faithful person. If you are habitually honest, then you are an honest person. And one of the things we all want to do is to develop some exciting spiritual traits. So we all have manifested in our lives an ability to live disciplined, except when it comes to the kingdom. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, But refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. Exercise thyself rather unto godliness. Spend your time and energy in the exercise of keeping spiritually fit. What can we do as believers to also stay fit in the Lord's service? Here's, here's a suggestion. This, keep in mind the word discipline here, okay? It has a little ouch to it. Discipline don't bring fond memories to a lot of us. But sometimes you have to exercise the discipline of letting go. Everybody say letting go. Anytime we add something new to our schedule, something else has to be dropped. I see this all the time as pastor. A lot of parents sign their kids up for the sports league play baseball and basketball and football and that, so we don't see them on Wednesday night anymore until that's over. They, had, they added something new to their schedule, so they had to drop something else off their schedule. And I have found in 30 years of pastoring that anything that needs to be dropped off of a person's schedule, church is first. That's the first thing to go. I'm right, whether we agree with that or not. It's true in the vast majority of cases. So most of us know the difficult choice of even adding, adding a new ministry objective at church. And sometimes that can only be done by dropping, dropping something else out of our very busy schedule. So what do we do? We try to make God number one, but in order to do that, sometimes we have to sacrifice things that are number one to us. Writer of Hebrews, you know, it's amazing to me how relevant the Bible is. A lot of people don't believe it is, but it is. It's, uh, it's very relevant. The writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 12, 1, Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Who are these witnesses? Are they always the victorious? Or are they also made up of people who had an opportunity to be successful for the kingdom but chose a different path instead? So we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. He said, so let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. So let us strip off every weight that slows us down. Two things here hold us back, weight and sin. And for most Christian people, sin, I like to believe, I choose to believe that sin is is more of a negligible thing. Sin is... As I don't believe we just have church folks that just run around looking for ways to sin. Uh, you may have a few here and there, but for the most part, 
uh, I think people really try hard, but we're, we're, we're weighted down with other things. We're weighted down with busy schedules where God could tap our potential and do something great with us in the kingdom. We choose rather to pick something else to fill up our time in our lives with. These weights in our lives keep us from developing our full potential, and that's what can make our, our life a waste. It's not sin. It's weights. Because we never develop to our full potential. So now we all know what sin is. It's breaking God's law. And, but how about weight? A weight is something that's not really wrong. It's just extra. It's not always necessary either. You might have an innocent hobby that is fun and exhilarating and beneficial, but at a certain time in your life, it's just one too many things bubbling over the top of your glass. Again, to quote Rick Warren, he said, A weight can be all kinds of things. It could be a relationship. It could be an expectation. It could be an activity. It could be a club. It could be a memory that you refuse to let go of. It could be a fear. It could be a job. And then he coins this expression, to grow, to grow, I must learn to say no. I belong to the Gold Wing Road Riders Association, the, the motorcycle group. And uh, since I've joined most of the rides they do, I'll get an email that says, meet at the Shell Station at Greenville Springs Road and Magnolia Beach Road. Meet there at 8 o'clock on Sunday morning. Kick stands up at 8.15. Well, they just knocked me out of that trip. I've not missed church one time as much as I love riding that motorcycle. I've never missed church once because of it. Sometimes you have to say no. They did do a ride here a while back, and I was able to go on it. And uh, I pulled up, and they, hey, stranger, hey, stranger. I said, well, I'm glad y'all finally did a ride other than Sunday morning. And they all said, and it's hilarious to me, People think I was born last night. They said, well, we go to church too, preacher. I said, well, how are y'all doing all these rides on Sunday morning then? Somebody's going. They just kind of looked at each other and they said, well, I guess he's right. Uh, well, you go to church when you don't have a motorcycle ride to go on. That's what you're saying. I didn't say that, but I thought it. <clears throat> so some good things may have to go. If we want to have room for God in our lives, if we want to spend time each day reading our Bibles, for example, if we're going to be involved in some form of a, a small group during the week, if we're going to memorize Bible verses, if we're going to be faithful on Sundays and Wednesdays. So I have a specific request. Drop something. If you want to grow, say no to some things. Pick something bad and trivial. Or if you even have to pick something good, something worthwhile, Put that on the shelf, and maybe for the next few months, and maybe even it'll become forever, you'll be available to the kingdom of God when God chooses, and then your potential develops. There's folks sitting here tonight, your potential hasn't nearly been developed or tapped to what it could be. And uh, it's, it's God's given us natural gifts and, and divine gifts and all these kind of things, but it's kind of hard to use them for the kingdom when you're not here. <clears throat> so maybe for the next few months, maybe forever, you can reevaluate and find that you really do have more time for the kingdom in your life. So instead of 
watching a television rerun that you've seen four or five times anyway, just turn that off and uh, plan to attend a small group that night or plan to attend Wednesday night church. That's a novel idea. Um, It says in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 27, reverence for the Lord, reverence for the Lord adds hours to the day. Have you ever had a day or a week where you stayed very busy but didn't get much accomplished? Many trivial things competed for your attention all day long. So what should you do? Where should you start? Sometimes you just kind of bump your way through a bunch of obligations and figure as long as I stay busy and do useful things all day every day, that's what counts. That's sort of true. But on the other hand, there are times when you don't know just, you just don't want to stay busy You want to be doing the most important thing first right now today. As a matter of fact, it says in Psalm 39, verse 6, that all our busy rushing ends in nothing. That's Bible. So this is one more element of what we call discipline. It means putting first things first. Miss Peabody said that in my fifth grade class as my teacher more times than I can remember. You must put first things first. We all know the story of Mary and Martha, kind of the double-mint twins, who we both know were Jesus' good friends. And he came to visit one day, and it's interesting that the New new Revised Standard Version Bible says she, Martha, was distracted by her many tasks. Does that diagnosis ring a bell with anybody? We just have so many things going on, we can't clearly see which ones are important. So in Luke chapter 10, Martha's frazzled, as you know, and she's fussy in the kitchen. And she comes to Jesus and said, Dude, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all this work by myself? Tell her to come help me. And Jesus gives her this quiet, soul-searching answer. Martha, Martha, you're worried and distracted by many things. Somebody has suggested that Martha had spiritual ADD. Then Jesus says this, Martha, there's a need of only one thing. And Mary has chosen that better part. Sometimes it comes down to just choosing just the one thing. This one thing I do, Paul said once. Jesus said to Martha, you have to choose between doing, doing the dishes or spending an hour right now with me, especially because I'm here in your home right now. That should have been no contest for Martha. It should have been a no-brainer. You can do dishes anytime. But you don't always have those God moments. Here's a way to put all of this in perspective. If we live to be 80 years old, that comes to 29,200 days if you live to 80. So let's say you're going to live on this earth for 29,200 days. Does it make sense to spend however many of those days making sure that what's left of those 29,200 days are spent in purposeful living? And considering God's children are going to live for all of eternity... Then a few days of prayer for reflection now seems like an even more brilliant idea and investment into those days. Someone once said Americans spend $600 million a year on exercise equipment, not counting what it costs to store it. <clears throat> but they never allot for the time it takes to use it. I've been in people's houses. I can say this with a clear conscience. We used to have a treadmill 
and we promptly gave it away. It just don't look good with a flower pot sitting on top of it. There's just something about it. it you, you try to stack magazines on it. You try to stack little tables and flowers and all. It just, it's not a piece of furniture. And when people see it, they look at you and say, you idiot. Are you trying to camouflage that thing? Just go ahead and tell everybody you're lazy and you don't use it and you wasted your money when you bought it. Am I reading anybody's mail here tonight about a treadmill? <clears throat> So what does God want? He wants all of us. He wants 100% commitment. So what does it take? Discipline. It takes practice. It takes prioritizing. It takes just doing it. So in conclusion tonight, why should I do these things? Why? Why? Why change my life and turn everything upside down? I could give you 100 answers to that question or even more. I could go through my own life testimony, my ups and downs, and my eventual decision regarding being saved and then being called to ministry. But the answer is just simply two words long. When you look at your life compared to the life of Christ, especially when it came to these two words, the cross, you get your answer. Because he absolutely gave his life for us. He deserves it out of us. Jesus is a worthy recipient of our time, our loyalty, and our commitment. Jesus gave his life so that we could live ours forever with him. We know that. We've heard it and said it all of our lives. But now at some point, you act on it. If the Calvary story is true, then we owe Jesus that. So if you and I today were to be confronted by a person whose sacrifice for us was to what did, did save our lives, give us an eternity of perfection and unparalleled joy, we would owe that person whatever we could give. We would owe them our life, our loyalty, our passion, our abilities. We'd owe them everything. And it's because of the cross it is absolutely appropriate that we give God what is His, all of us. This is why I cannot for the life of me understand why people will not pay their tithes. That's easy. That's easy, all things considered. It is. Especially when you realize the amazing magnitude of blessing that comes as a result of it. But the Bible said he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Paul said to the church at Rome, brothers and sisters, in view of what we all have just shared about God's compassion, I encourage you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices dedicated to God and pleasing to him. You could interpret Paul's statement as saying, don't squander the opportunity. So it's my role as pastor to paint a picture for you of how good a decision this can be. To don't waste your life, but to invest it in the kingdom. It's a great decision. I'll tell you today, and you all know it, I love the Christian message. I love being a child of God. I don't always live by the right priorities, but I have them, and I, I strive every day to live by them. I know they're true, 
I've seen it in my life and in the world around me and in the lives of people I hold very dear. So when we make this lifelong decision to live a life that matches God's purpose for us, then it will be incredibly rich, satisfying, marvelous, golden. Because we are disciplined enough to respond to Calvary and put God first. And then the Bible says, if you do, all these other things will be added unto you. I made the statement last week when I taught on tithing week before last I've never seen a person go bankrupt because of tithing I've never seen people do without because they've tithed not one I've never seen anybody lose their car their home their job because they paid their tithes in the same in the same sense if we could all zoom out and just look at Christian life priority and discipline from just a let's zoom out and let's look at it from a, a, a bigger a bigger picture Has anybody been to the funeral of a saint of God that's elderly, lived for God for years and years and years? Have you ever been to their funeral and you can just feel the peace and the confidence and you can hear people talking about sister so-and-so and brother so-and-so when we stood up here and looked at Brother Alexander at the trials and heartache and all the things the man went through uh, all of his life. God sustained him through everything he went through. God kept him through everything they went through. But his funeral was amazingly peaceful and hopeful and comforting because you knew that all of his life he made the right priorities. He chose the right priorities. He lived the right priorities. Him and Sister Alexander single-handedly is why this church is still here. It is. I know that for a fact. So at his funeral, it was so comforting to say the man has been to hell and back many, many times and suffered all kinds of things and what have you, but man alive, isn't it worth it now? Isn't it worth it now? He's in his 90s, 95, I believe, something like that. And got to see the, did the groundbreaking for the A Center over there and all that. And just imagine where he's at now. We all want to end up like that. But you don't. Unless you make your priorities right. Now. Then you have the funeral of the person who did the deathbed confession, the deathbed conversion. They live like the devil all their life. I used to not believe in deathbed conversion, but I do now. I believe God will save people as long as there's breath in their lungs and a brain working in their head. He'll save them just like that. God don't want anybody to go to hell. I've seen some folks come right down to the wire. I personally prayed with a man that did not have the wherewithal to get his heart right with God, and he did die, and he knew that he was dying, knowing that he wasn't right with God. His wife lived for God for years, never would go to church with her. But I've been to the funerals of people who made it in, just they squeaked in. God was merciful, and uh, right before, minutes before they died, they got their heart right with God. Well, at that funeral, everybody's running around saying, Wow, God's amazing guy lived like the devil all of his life and God saved him right at the end who wants that said at their funeral I don't 
And then you have the folks that the opportunity was there Sunday in, Sunday out, Wednesday in, Wednesday out, opportunity there in front of them, in front of them, in front of them. Like the man I just referenced, never took advantage of it. Those funerals are sad, really sad. Don't waste your life. I'm talking to somebody here tonight. I, 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 there's folks that are here tonight. I had no way of knowing you'd be here. But uh, you get tired of church. You get discouraged with church. You get tired of all the rules and all of that. But I can promise you, when the trumpet sounds or you breathe your last breath, you're going to thank God for eternity that you made the right choice. But if you don't do it, the options aren't that good. So, folks, if you're here sitting on the fence, if you can't make your mind up, don't waste your life. Let God step into your life right now while he can. And do something great with your life. I say this tonight, and I'm, I'm closing. I'm done after this. I said here a while back, and I, I think about things a long time, most of the time before I say it. The little one-eyed man joke I told you at the beginning, I've been thinking about that for two days before I got up here and said it. Just want to make sure that hopefully it wouldn't be offensive to anybody. But I think about what I say. And I write everything out, I type it out, and I virtually read it. I made the statement several months ago that I wonder sometimes if God didn't call me to the ministry to save me. Had he not done that, I don't know if I'd be in church today or not. I don't know if church would be appealing to me if I didn't have this fire on the inside of me. I'm being honest. I'm being honest here tonight. It would be very easy for me to, as a carnal man, to say I'm not going to church Wednesday night. I'm not going to go Sunday morning. Then you start missing one, then two, then, you know, then it's pretty soon. Sister Murphy and I ran across some folks last night committed to the teeth at one time. To see them the way I saw them last night, I'd have never dreamed it was possible. Never in a thousand years dreamed it would be possible. But somebody decided that this living for Jesus thing wasn't worth it. So they walked away. I hope things change before rapture, before their passing. I hope it does. But if it doesn't, they've wasted their life. They're wasting it. I don't care what else you do. I don't care what else you do. Living for Jesus is the most important thing, the most important decision, the most important promise you'll ever make. Let's stand together. Jesus, we love you tonight, and this is a sobering moment. And um, this would have been a good Sunday morning sermon, perhaps, but I just wanted to teach it tonight. felt like you wanted to do that. So it can really resonate in our hearts and maybe we can marinate in it for the next few days. There's people here tonight that live on the the edge of the church, the edge of the kingdom. The door that brought them in, they've not moved that much further past it. But you want us to keep growing in our love and affection for you. You want us to keep growing in our commitment and our dedication to you. You want us, God, to live up to your expectation of us. You want us to take those amazing gifts that you've given us naturally and divinely and to use them for nothing but your kingdom. 
I pray tonight, God, that you would talk to some folks tonight, that you would bring us just a little bit closer to you, that we could be a little bit better this coming Sunday when we walk in the door. Maybe our attitude would be better. Maybe we'll have spent a little more time in prayer. Maybe we'd have read a few more verses than we usually do. But I pray that you would talk to us tonight, whatever it takes, and by all means, help us not to make our life a waste, but to make it profitable for your kingdom, for your glory, for your great majesty. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. And everybody say amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here tonight. And uh, you're dismissed. And uh, come out Sunday with your shouting shoes on, and we'll have good church. Thank the Lord. God bless you tonight.